0: Welcome to the Future Tech edition of the Finding Genius Podcast. Forget frequently asked questions, forget common sense, common knowledge, or Googling for information. How about advice from a genius in their field instead? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are the geniuses of their profession. Richard has made it his life's mission to interview the geniuses of their fields in areas such as AI, 3D printing, quantum computing, blockchain and Bitcoin and more. Don't miss out on amazing podcasts with geniuses. Review us on iTunes or wherever you listen and go to futuretech.findinggeniuspodcast.com and subscribe today.
1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius Podcast series. I have uh, Alejandro Reyes Munoz. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at the Universidad de Los Andes. Um, He works in microbiology, and we're going to be talking about uh, microbial communities and their interactions and uh, all that interesting stuff. So, Alejandro, thanks for coming.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
1: Yeah. Well, if you would, tell me about your research. What are you looking at?
2: So, my research started in the microbiology field and soon during my phd i started working in the microbiome so you know that the microbiome right now is very in trend and uh, we've been looking at the microbiome for uh, over 10 years now and initially the gut microbiome and then within the gut microbiome uh, we focused on the viral part of it so looking at what viruses do usually compose the microbiome, so are not viruses that usually will make you sick, uh, like will have acute diseases, but more the viruses that will remain with you over time. And those are usually phages that are viruses that infect bacteria and help control the bacterial communities. And then since I've been moving back to Colombia over six years ago, I've been uh, still working with virums, uh, student viral communities, especially in the gut, but i am also been looking at the microbiomes of different environments and, and different genomics projects, mostly using computational okay. biology tools.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So in, in our virome and the viruses inside of us, you said a lot of them are phages, I guess, that prey upon the bacteria that are also commensal with us, right? Right. And then, um, I don't know, it's a crazy question, but I've, I've heard that, you know, some viruses have endogenized into our DNA. Has anyone looked to see if... Um, there's a component of our virome that comes from our own cells you know from the endogenized viral DNA that is now activated somehow to produce them
2: right uh, that that is a very interesting question, and there have been people looking at at those viruses i 'm not particularly looking at those because i 'm looking more into the microbial communities, so that will be the difference between. Uh, you know, all the um, epithelial tissue surfaces, that is all the places that are colonized with bacteria, and you can have them in your skin, but also in internal organs like the mouth, the gut, the and and different sites that will be colonized by bacteria. So those are the sites that we usually look for the microbiome and also in the environment, those sites. If you're going to be looking okay. at the, the viruses that get induced within our own cells, you probably will be looking at tissues or blood streams or other places. And, and when they've been looking at the cells, they do see that, and more by evidence of uh, heterogeneity in the places of insertions of those retroviruses. So they know that some of those retroviruses are still active and they can still jump in different places of the human cells. But uh, that is part of other research.
1: Okay. Yeah, I know there's a ton to look at. Um, also, and two, in regards to the to the microbiome. So, I guess, what does it look like inside of us? Is it are most of the microbes in biofilms? You know, uh, or are they free floating? You know, has anyone gotten a sense of uh, you know for various niches in our body what the microbes look like?
2: Um, I I think they are starting to actually go in and take samples and look like for what we have researched, we haven't gone specifically to look at the specific structures uh, that are making the the microbial communities. But as far as we know, yes, they make biofilms, they make layers of microbial communities and, and different layers interact with different microbes and also microbes interact with the mucus layer that we form. And some of the microbes like to live within the mucus layer. Some of the other microbes like to live on top of the mucus layer, but interacting with it and some of the microbes will just depend on other layers that will be forming because, of course, they need to get a hold. Uh, the gut is essentially a tube of constantly flowing nutrients and liquids so if they don't get a hold to something, they'll be just washed away. So, in order for the microbes to thrive, they need to work in association with other surfaces or other organisms.
1: So, what are you trying to figure out about, uh, you know, the, the various microbiomes inside of us?
2: So, uh, we're looking at the at the viral component because it's a component that have, hasn't been looked very in detail, and and the phages because as as we mentioned previously they have a very important role in reconfiguring the community. So there are different ways of thinking about it. Um, The viruses in in the cells could be a potential tool as people are talking about phage therapy within the antimicrobial resistance uh, problem that we currently have. But we also want to look at the viral diversity itself because uh, viruses change and evolve their genomes a lot faster than the microbes. So they have the capacity to adapt and change quite a bit faster than any other microbe can. And then the type of genes that those phages are moving or that, that those phages are holding could have a very important uh, significance for the bacteria that they will be interacting with. Plus the capacity of, of lysing cells uh, has the, the capacity of restructuring the community in, in different ways. So some of that is are some of the questions that we're looking for now.
1: Yeah, I've heard there's like two main types of phages. There's ones that just like with us, you know, the, the they endogenize their DNA or RNA into the bacteria and become part of them and then other ones go in there, take over the bacterial machinery and cause them to lice and you know blow open and spread more phages. So is there a particular kind that predominates in our bodies or is it a mixture of the two?
2: I can speak in particular for the gut, that is the environment that I have been looking the most. And what we have seen in the most is that the gut is mostly populated by viruses that has a temperate lifestyle, meaning that those that integrate into the genomes. In healthy individuals, those are the viruses that we most frequently see. And we see that because we find the same virus over time we have seen that those have the characteristic gene, genetic structure of the viruses that typically uh, incorporate into the, the host cell genome. And and we're also trying to figure out why that will happen. And, and with other collaborators and, and a previous mentor, Forrest Roher from San Diego State uh, University, he has also been uh, describing a model in which it seems that the lifestyle of the viruses depend on the, um, a little bit on the density and the microbial density of the community. So when there's space for the vac- bacteria to grow, when there's active growth of bacteria, and there's relatively a good space for the viruses to, to change, that usually favors a more lytic type of uh, lifestyle. But whenever it's a highly dense uh, community, like the, the gut is, it's a big concentration of microbial cells then it favors more uh, lysogenic lifestyle. It seems like the viruses, like we shouldn't uh, try to kill things. We are like there's not a lot of resources. It's better that we stay within the cell and see if they survive.
1: Oh, that's interesting because I mean viruses spend you know a good part of their time in what seems to be an inactive stage. Like you know that's a good question. So when a, when a bacteria first. When a bacteria is first lysed by the viruses inside of it and they burst out, are they in an active or an inactive form?
2: So uh, it will be hard to define what will be active or inactive. So, for example, a lot of viruses have genes within them that is something that we want to study again that are sensors. You know, like bacteria has quorum sensing, and it's already been reported that viruses have some type of quorum sensing as well. So it doesn't only really? detect. Yeah. So it doesn't only detect the, the, how the bacteria is doing, but also detects how many other bacteria are around them. And, and if those other sort of bacteria are also harboring viruses. So that wait, is wait, a single wait, wait, point wait, quick, that,
1: quick second here. That's crazy. So do you think viruses have quorum sensing only when they're inside a bacteria using the bacteria's? abilities to do that? Or you think when they're in free floating form that they're somehow giving off some kind of like, you know, EV or some kind of molecule that causes the quorum sensor?
2: Um, I think that when they're in a, a freestyle, like when they're in the fish particle, then it will be limited because they have the outer capsid. So then only uh, molecules that will be outside uh, of the capsid could be doing any relevant function of sensing. Additionally, I, I think, actually, I will, I will tend to think uh, the, almost the other way around. I will think that while the virus is in the capsid is more inactive than is that when it's in the cell. I see the capsid more as a transportation mechanism that the virus used to get to the next host. But the most active state of the virus is when it's in within the cell even when it's integrated into the genome because we know that viruses are still express some genes they we have seen expression of toxin antitoxin systems for the viral maintenance and they have other genes that are like the traditional ones uh, like lambda will do will just be sensing how the DNA damage machinery of the cell is doing. And whenever they sense that the damage, the DNA damage of the cell uh, response is turning on, then it's a signal for the face to turn on. So they're all the time, even when they seem to be silent or sleeping within the cell genome, they're always sensing what's going on in their environment I and in mean, their, even within the cell. And, and what has been known more recently is even outside the cell. They're capable of getting those signals and then based on that, make the decision of whether they should st- remain as, as uh, integrated into the genome or just pop out and, and leave. Because it's a big investment of energy that they have to do in order to replicate the genome. And if the environment is not favorable, uh, they just might play the game of, of waiting to see if the, the bacterial cell by itself uh, has the capacity of surviving.
1: That's amazing. So. Even when they're when they're going to lice the bacteria they're inside, or you know, uh, are they doing some kind of sensing so they know the quote unquote right time when to lice the uh, the bacterial host, or maybe it's a certain number of them that have been produced within the confines of the bacteria. They say, okay, now we're ready.
2: I think uh, is that's that's the trick of the switch, um, and and that switch can be triggered by different signals, and and. and We know some of the systems in in classic bacteriophages like Lambda and other phages from E. coli, we're starting to figure those out in some other systems. But once the the phage decides to make the switch there, I think there's no turning back. So once the phage decides, okay, we can go out as lytic and begins turning all all that machinery on and taking control of the bacterial um, uh, genetic uh, components, then there's no turning back and back.
1: So what do you think is the interplay between phages and bacteria, You know, like in our guts? Is it they're constantly trying to out-evolve each other or um, do the phages, I don't know, they hang out and they don't do much until conditions are such that they they think it's favorable to attack their favorite bacteria? I mean, what are some of the dynamics you've seen?
2: I I think that's exactly what we're starting to figure out. And and it's hard to, to, for sure, I don't think there's a unique dynamic or mechanism uh, playing a role in the gut. I think there are very different uh, potential uh, dynamics and interactions. Um, There are some in which it seems like more the the bacterial cell can can trigger the phage induction. For example, we've seen cases where, for example, Uh, when you reach certain density of a given bacterial um, member, bacterial species in the gut, then they may trigger uh, the phage with the hope that they will kill similar bacteria that are not harboring the prophage in a way of uh, getting more space. So whenever you're reaching a saturation point like density saturation point, you will see the phage being turned on and then then the bacteria will go back whatever it loses because of some bacteria sacrificing themselves due to that phage induction, because they will have to die to to generate the phage population. Then the bacteria will gain that uh, space again. But I think it's an effort into trying to open more spaces by killing similar bacteria that do not harbor the phage. So uh, it's openly opening more spaces for the team. And and there's other type of interactions. There, there's been a, a recent paper uh where I don't remember exactly the bacterial model. I think it was with um Salmonella if I was if I'm right, that the bacteria will come in and when they were getting closer to the to the GI, they will induce the phage, killing some of the bacteria, but it'll be just enough for the phage to cross the epithelial barrier. In order to turn on a somewhat of immune response that will create inflammation, and that inflammation will reduce some of the symbionts of the or the good bacteria, making a more favorable environment for the Salmonella infection and colonization. So, so in a certain way, it seems like the bacteria can almost improperly turn on or off their prophages, even though they will kill a part of their population, but they in the long term it may bring some benefit to the bacterial population as well. And of That's course crazy.
1: They're... So yeah. You think the bacteria as a population is making somehow this population wide decision to preferentially allow a phage to inhabit them and to direct them for a while? Or to kill them?
2: I I think so, and I think it's just been a co-evolution between the phages and the bacteria, and and when you look more and more at uh, different bacterial species, when you look at the strain level differences, most of those strain level differences, besides being like small SNPs or stuff like that, are usually phages. What do you see, this, this strain will have a phage, this strain will not have it, this strain will have it in a different position. So, so there's been a, a big revolution between different bacterial species and their phages. And, and we know that phages can move genes. So those genes, while well, they are in, uh, within the bacterial, like incorporated into their genome, they can bring uh, very important capabilities to the bacteria. And then they will also be able to, especially something that we are seeing more often is that a lot of those unknowns, because most of the face genomes, when we try to annotate those, those are mostly unknowns. But a lot of what we see now is that they look as uh, transcription factors. So it seems that our genes that are capable of responding and changing bacterial expression under different conditions. And that can be very important for the bacterial host.
1: Uh, this is crazy. Um, so do you, are you saying that bacteria are able to use phages as tools in the right context to help achieve the aim of an infectious bacteria population, for
2: instance? Yeah, that's pretty much what I believe right now. Uh, Finding the the right evidence for that is another thing. But based on on some of the papers that have been coming out and some of the interactions we have seen, it it just seemed like, uh, yeah, that the bacteria, by some mechanism, uh, I think it's environmental sensors, can have enough pressure that will turn on phages and in the long term will help the bacterial population of that species uh, that's that's what the data is suggesting whether it's a, a bacterial control mechanism an environmental control mechanism a phage control mechanism is still open but but it seems that is something like that
1: well i okay. so I'm, I'm imagining like the conditions inside the gut And, you know, we could say like our own cells are monitoring those conditions and they have one of the tools at their disposal, you know, the immune response and all that. Um, They probably have, I guess, their own signaling with the bacteria in our guts, too. I would guess there is probably direct cell to bacteria communication. I don't even know if that's been elucidated, but
2: Uh, that is something that I'll I cannot say a lot of groups, but quite a few groups are working on it right now. And yeah, there are a lot of uh, communications. So both, if you look at the most, uh, the most prevalence of immune cells in the human body is around the gut. And the same thing, if you look the most uh, nervous, uh, like, Termini or the place with more neurons, other than the brain, will be around the gut. So there is really a very direct and close communication between the gut and the human through the immune system, through um, neurotransmitters uh, and and other molecules. And there are quite you a few studies that. Yeah.
1: Do you get the sense that? And this is speculation, I know, but. You get the sense that uh, the bacteria in our guts, for instance, are communicating with our cells and possibly our immune system, and they're making somewhat joint decisions as to what to do based on the conditions of the gut, and that may be modulating phage activity and bacterial activity in our own immune response and our own cell activity. You think it's yeah. that complex and coordinated?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm almost right on about that. Because we know that even when you have mice with certain immune deficiencies, the patterns of prophase induction in the bacteria colonizing them will change. So, so even changing parts of the immune system of the mice will change the triggers that will lead to the timing of the phage induction. So, so I think that there's a very complex communication uh, between all the all the members in the in the gut,
1: that's amazing. And do you think do you think that our you know somatic cells again can inform bacterial cells? Okay, the conditions are such that you should modulate how you respond to your constituent phages and either allow or disallow something or change how you interact with them.
2: I don't know how much our somatic cells could be the ones telling the bacteria what to do. I I will tend to think that it's almost the other way around since uh, it's quite likely that the bacteria that we have within are the ones that are first sensing those environmental changes. Like when you change your diet or you drink something that is very acid or you, I don't know, you drink, you have different nutrients, the bacteria will be the first ones being able to sense that new component in their environment and then tell the cells in their body that something is changing and that they have to re- respond differently. And then they will start a, a crosstalk when one is, saying, is sending some signal, the other one will be responding and the other and then the, the bacterial community will be adapting to that new response. Uh, and and then, then they'll start the crosstalk. But uh, from my point of view, and this again is pure speculation, probably the bacteria is the one likely starting that communication.
1: Hmm. I mean, it, our immune response appears to be a tool of, you know, our cells, our somatic cells. Um, I don't know, do our, 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 our cells, I guess, in their communication with our constituent bacteria, they're, they're also using the bacteria as a proxy, as a tool as well, in many ways, for their own, you know, to keep up their own homeostasis and their own health
2: yeah and and seeing it from a from a point of view when when your immune system is maturating it's exactly the same time around when your microbiome is maturating, so they are both forming and 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 learning together, so when your bacteria learn to rec- when your immune system sorry learn to recognize uh, your self-antigens just to not respond to those, it also will learn how to recognize what the, the usual microbiome is, so it will not respond to that. So so in in a certain way, I think as the immune system will see that as something external, something that has to be kept and looked on, but you don't have to uh, attack on or you don't have to respond on. Only when, whenever the bacteria will cross the epithelial barrier going into the bloodstream or or into the tissues, then there's a job of the immune system to try to control that because now you have a bacterial infection. Other than that, actually your bacteria is uh, a very important layer of protection for the human host, because as long as you're colonized by symbionts and by good bacteria, there will be there'll very likely be out-competing potential pathogens. So so it's in its own benefit for the immune system to keep that bacterial community uh, there and in control.
1: That's really interesting. I didn't realize, yeah, that makes sense. Our immune system is so sophisticated. It can tell self versus non-self, but non-self beneficial versus non-self pathogenic
2: or however you want to characterize it so it's not that it's it's going to be able to tell non-self pathogenic versus non-pathogenic you will be able to recognize uh the for example uh like common bacteria that i've seen throughout my life towards something that i haven't seen that is coming in potentially a pathogen and and that's the big problem in in many cases of malnutrition where your microbiome is not maturating correctly. And then your immune system learns that those pathogens that are coming in your body are the common thing. So whenever your good microbiome tries to colonize, your immune system has never seen that and may may respond against it. So so it's a big problem when the maturation of your microbiome is being modified or altered in any way because it will have consequences later as well.
1: Well, I think a way to study all these interactions is to provide deliberate miscues. So you learn what the cues are, you know? Hey, like what's what's your methodology to like figure out these mechanisms of communication and these interactions? Like how do you, how are you picking it apart?
2: So what we've been doing right now is, is just uh, trying to introduce phages and or bacterial members into mice with different conditions uh sometimes different genetic backgrounds and see how they they re- respond and see if the community itself responds differently and then there are other mechanisms and and I'm by no means any immunologists but i've worked with some immunologists that they have mechanisms of studying what type of immune response is happening with these changes
1: well one thing that may be helpful i brought this up a lot recently i, I spoke to a um... A researcher named Florencia McAllister, and she's studying, I guess, you know, pancreatic tumors and pancreatic cancer. And she said that they've observed that, you know, the tumors, for instance, have a different microbial attachment than the rest of the pancreas. So, I mean, what does that tell you? If, you know, not only do we have different microbial attachments, you know, in various parts of our body, but, I mean, to what level does it specificity does it go down to? You know, if you have, um, I don't know, if the, you know, if our gut is made of five different cell types does each arrangement of cell types have its own microbial attachment like even within the gut within the lumen at different spots in it you know is the microbial composition very different and how is there a i don't know how does that particular arrangement arise based on you know what our cells and the bacteria they attract
2: yes um and, and again, I'm, I'm I'm a microbiologist, so so I know a little bit more on the bacteria and most about like the genomics and metagenomics part of it. But based on what I've seen and learned, uh, my guess is bacterial cells and, and in particular the gut bacteria, they have a very good um, bacterial cell attachment because of what we were talking initially. So they like to bind to different things. And in particular, they're good binders for carbohydrates and that's why the, our, even our mucus keeps changing its glycosylations frequently and then there will be some bacteria that will be more keen to, to attach to one type of glycosylation some other bacteria will try to bind to some other type of sugars and what it has been seen is that when when you do uh, there's how nowadays like microbiome GWAS and and they're looking at uh precisely point variants in the host genome, being human or mouse, and s- compare that to the to the microbiome that is colonizing. And, and it's been seen that if you have a mutation that will not generate a certain type of glycosylation in your cells, then there are certain types of bacteria that cannot colonize because they just like that those glycans. So uh, I can see that if you change the pattern of glycosylation that you'll have in the exterior of a cell, then for sure the type of microbes that will bind will begin changing. And, and I think, at least for the mucus layer, that could be changed relatively often. I, I don't know if it will be a function of the diet or it will be just a function of your genome, or, or how is that being controlled?
1: I would think it would be, a, a, a for sure, a function of what you eat each meal, because what, whatever sugars and other carbohydrates and constituents that are present in your gut at that period of time would attract very rapidly the microbes that like to uh, feast on them.
2: Right, and and then uh, different animals will have different transit times, and and then it'll change for how long that meal will remain within the gut, and and you know that our microbial composition in our stomach is quite different than the microbial composition in our small intestine, that is quite different than the microbial composition of in our large intestines. So usually. You know that most of the absorption we do is is usually in the small intestine that is quite long and is usually for simple nutrients and simple carbohydrates and simple sh- uh, fats and sugars but then anything that is left over is what will be sent to the to the large intestine for the gut for the bacterial in the gut to try to decompose that and process that and try to st- extract a little bit more energy or more nutrients and and usually they will just change a lot of the fiber to short chain fatty acids. That is usually what the um, epithelial cells will really like. And that's why there's a big interaction between them uh, as they decompose that. But, but then it's again the question of the balanced nutrition because if you eat things that get only absorbed in the small intestine, uh, then there will not going to be a lot of nutrients for the bacteria in the, in the large intestine to process. Yeah, well, that's true. They... Yeah, your daily meal and, and how balanced it is and how much rich in fiber and complex polysaccharides that is usually what bacteria would like to eat um, or what will be able to reach all the way to the large intestine. It definitely is going to determine what type of bacterial populations. And I have heard probably this not published but some colleagues that when they do the dietary recalls of humans, and compare those to the microbiomes over time, the best uh, indicator of changes or composition or structure of the microbial community is precisely what you have been eating within the 24 to 48 hours before. That is really going to be a good predictor of what the structure of your community is going to look like.
1: I mean, I guess you'd assume that the phage component would follow suit, but has anyone, I don't know, has any group done a study where they compare what you eat versus uh, your phage population?
2: Um, we know for studies that we have done, we haven't done sampling. Well, I, I have done a study where in mice where we did sample daily and even two or three times a day. And we know that phage induction, phage um, birth sizes, Uh, are very fast and very short. They may last within 24 to 48 hours only. So then definitely they will be uh, very important responders of uh, any big environmental change or something that is definitely something that one bacteria definitely didn't like. And you know how a lot of those stressors that could be present in nutrients uh, could be triggers also for phase induction. Uh, So it, it can help So, so that's another important role of the phages in the gut community, because since phage can uh, trigger lytic cycles, causing the bacteria to very quickly decrease in abundance, it could be a a trigger for fast uh, reshaping in the community, faster than just a change of nutrients may lead. If you just change the nutrient, the bacteria may start dying or starving, and then somebody will come up slowly. But then if uh, if coupled to that, you have a phase induction, then the bacteria will die very fast. And since it's going to lyse, it's going to release very easy to use nutrients to the environment Then some other bacteria that actually like that nutrient can take over. So uh, it will be helping the viruses into a faster turnovers of the community in the gut responding to whatever the environmental of nutrient that you were eating at the time
1: huh. this is crazy just a couple more questions we're close to being out of time what what um i'm amazed by what you're telling me but what amazes you i mean maybe you're getting used to being amazed but <laughs> what are you seeing that just like you you can't even believe you're seeing
2: uh but so, what
1: implications you
2: know? so some of the thing that still amaze me is uh that we do all these experiments and we see all these behaviors but we still don't understand or have any clue on how that is working like this communication that we are almost shared by the consequences that are happening we still don't know how that communication is happening and 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 what keeps amazing me is that we find more and more and more viruses and we look at the genomes and we assemble the genomes we can call the genes and Back to 90% of the genes are completely hypotheticals. We still have no clue what those genes are doing. And, and the thing with the virus is that they're stable fast, but they're small and, and they need to be small. So they can only carry the genes that they actually need. So that means that all those genes are actually quite important for the viruses, for the community or for the bacteria. So, so those genes should be doing something important and we still have no idea what those genes are doing. Uh, so I think that and and one, one advantage of working with viruses, even though it's not very easy to work with, is that there's a lot of opportunities to, for research and to work because there are just so many questions, so many knowns. And, and that's just the fun of it.
1: So what do you think um, will be a breakthrough in understanding in the next couple of years? Is there anything you're sensing that's getting close to being understood?
2: I think... As we learn more about the genomes, more about the viruses, more about the lifestyle, more about what triggers their um, their induction or the lytic or lysogenic cycles, we, we will be able to understand them more and its potential as a tool. Because as I, as I mentioned, phage therapy was really big in the nineteen twenties, and then once we got anti- antibiotics, that was just a, a single molecule; it was easy to control. We, we kind of knew how it worked at the moment, but uh, at least we knew that will not change evolve, and and then it's when antibiotics took over. But now that we are in the crisis that no antibiotic is working, then we still have the phages because they're the natural predators, and and they will be killing those bacteria with very, very high specificity. But the thing that didn't let the fish therapy thrive at that time is that we didn't know how viruses worked and, and what will turn them on, what will make them evolve, and how they will change to changes in the environment. So hopefully, as we understand that nowadays, then uh, there will be a big chance for the fish therapy to to come back again. Now,
1: well, very good, Alejandro. Uh, what's the best way for people interested in all this to contact you or read papers that you put out? You know, what do you suggest?
2: <laughs> um not super good with social networks. I should be better on that. Um I'll, if anybody wants to contact me by email, that will be perfectly fine. And and our website we are going to be trying to uh refresh it this year to try to have a more updated type of of, of uh, website. But in general there are usually two big conference with, uh, that are fish based one each year, one is in Europe uh, this year, that is the international society for viruses of microbes. And then the other one is in the US that will be next year, that is the evergreen fish meeting. So those two meetings each uh, rate, I, I usually try to attend both. And when you go there, you can see the very last and uh, top of the results that are happening in the fish world. and every more so often now is being also including uh, phage ecology, phage interactions, phage within bacterial communities. So it's a very exciting field. And for sure, I, I, I am only contributing for a small part of it, but it's a big community and i growing community with very exciting results.
1: Okay, I see, ISVM, International Society for yep. viruses, viruses and Microorganisms. Okay, Yeah. excellent. That, that's it. Alejandro, this is great. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate
2: it. Okay. No, thank you.
0: You've been listening to the Future Tech edition of the Finding Genius Podcast. This podcast is information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed. Review us on iTunes or wherever you listen and subscribe today by going to futuretech.findinggeniuspodcast.com.